You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I wanted to just take a moment here, Stefan, um, because there's been, uh, unfortunately, another school shooting in America. We took a bit of a break, and when we were taking that break, there was a school shooting of children in Uvalde, Texas. This is very close to home for me because it's only about an hour away from where I live here in Texas. And I know um, sort of secondhand some people who were uh, affected by this. And I just wanted to take a moment just to address that everything I think has been said about America's gun culture and how violent and awful it is. But I want to make clear that I, and I know you, absolutely condemn this kind of violence, but also the mentality, I think, that led up to it. This comfortability with assault weapons, weapons of war, um, is unconscionable to me. And it is exactly the reason that these things happen. It's not video games. It's not TV. Um, it's the accessibility to these weapons. So I just wanted to say that we unfortunately had a very timely episode with our Waddington reading series talking about violence. That was not planned. Um, we recorded that prior to that incident in Uvalde. Um, we are going to be talking about violence again today. And I think it's worth talking about in terms of video games because you need to kind of have the rhetoric and the knowledge to clarify what the actual issue is. And when people blame media, I think that's just a smokescreen that's sent up. And it's worth it to be able to um, adequately and uh, clearly explain why that's not the case and that it's actually this other underlying issue here in the States. So I just wanted to say that my heart, I know both of our hearts go out to everyone in Uvalde who was affected by this and to anyone who's affected by any of these shootings um, that should categorically not be happening anymore. And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, there's, there's no reason that such a thing needs to happen. And I can say that from across the pond, there's always a profound confusion when it comes to um, US American handling of guns. Mm. Because from... When I when I read the news, I mean, I immediately sent you a message once I once I got yeah. the, got wind of it. But I do also remember that one of the things that first shocked me is that someone of such a young age as the perpetrator here was, I think, eighteen years old, was able to purchase like two assault rifles. Where it's just like there's no reason in the world why why an eighteen no. year old should just be able to go to a store and purchase two assault rifles. But I've got a question actually is. Has any kind of motive on this been determined? Because the last thing I heard was that it was kind of, it seemed a little bit almost coincidental as the killer had no relation to that elementary school. You know, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Um, I know that there's been 
there's been speculation about motivation against sort of like women in general. Also, there's some racial motivation because Uvalde is a very Hispanic uh, community in in Texas here. And again, I I I don't know, and I think I almost don't care because I, I well I shouldn't say that. It's worth it to it's worth it to figure out what the motive was uh, so that you have a full picture of what happened. But I think like whatever your motivation, uh, adding an AR 15 into it is the real problem in my opinion. And I think as crazy or as hateful or as, uh, manic or whatever you want to call somebody who does this is you still need the tool to do it. And I think that that's, that's the heart of the issue. So yeah, I know it's, it's such a morass here in the States when you talk about motive, because lately I think, well, it's kind of all over the board. I mean, recently there was another shooting in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my understanding of that is that this was a man who couldn't get pain medication. So he stormed into this doctor's office and, and started shooting. And so the, the motives run the gamut. The, the problem, the, the commonality is the weapon. It is very troubling, and I do think it's very much worth addressing, especially because um, something that that we must keep in mind is that these school shootings that are intrinsically tied to the moral panic revolving around violence in video games, these school shootings did not stop. Like, you know, Columbine was not the end of it, unfortunately, and it is it is high time to really do something about it. Unfortunately, I don't believe that there will be a sincere regulation. I fear because I'm just disillusioned. Over the years, I became totally disillusioned. Well, I'm I'm with you, Stefan, and I think that's the disappointing thing is that um, this is. I think when you when you are able to say the English sentence, this is the second worst shooting of an elementary school in U.S. history. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. So I'll say this. Uh, I for for what it's worth, my fellow Americans vote. <laughs> this is it. It sounds cliche, but it it is. Don't let me let me say this. Do not be disillusioned with the system that we have, because the system does work. As much as we hear these horror stories about the Supreme Court voting, public opinion being loud and not taking no for an answer, that does eventually work. And I know it's disheartening that the word eventually is in there, but I'll say that the moment we become disillusioned and stop doing anything is the moment that this continues to happen in perpetuity. You're right. And I think it's important that we also make use of this platform that we have, which is a small platform, and it's a platform that's genuinely about video games and video game culture. But everyone knows we've always been a political podcast. And I think oh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the only thing that we can do in this, in, in such a point in time, is just simply call upon people to uh, do the best they can and to vote in favor of any kind of gun regulations. Yes. Yeah, so thank you, everyone, for uh, allowing me this soapbox moment. I will get off of it now, and we will talk about violence in video games, which is a little, little more lighthearted. <laughs> yes, a little bit more lighthearted and a very different subject. Yes, indeed. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today we're going to do another one of our reading episodes. And yes, we're going to engage with violence in video games, but very differently than we did last time. because. Two episodes ago, we read an article by David Waddington about ultra-violent video games and about how they are morally, how they are to be morally condemned. Now, we're going to read an article that responds to that. Markus Schulzkes, Defending the Morality of Violent Video Games, published in 2010 in the Ethics and Information Technology Journal. And this article is a response, but we're going to go through and explain things so that you can follow. Like, if you want to go deeper into the opposite side, into the perspective of why people might morally condemn violence and violence in video games, then please uh, listen to Studying Pixels episode 33, reading Waddington's Locating the Wrongness in Ultraviolent Video Games. But we're going to go through the Schulzke article today in a way so that it's understandable for everyone. My favorite thing about this article is that it should be subtitled Hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I I have some things to say. And I what I love about this article just to preface it is that we touched on some of these arguments when we read Waddington and I think it's uh, Schulzke very articulately explains the <laughs> the gut feeling you have as a reaction to what Waddington was saying. Yeah, he's a, Schulzke, he, at the time of writing, was at State University of New York. Later, he became an assistant professor at the University of York. And by now, he's actually a legislative performance auditor at the state of Colorado. I admit, I do not know what that is, a legislative performance <laughs> auditor. What is that? Uh, I would imagine, <laughs> I wonder if it just means going into uh, a legislative building and holding up like a, a sign with a number on it, how things went, <laughs> you know, all right, 8.5, well audited, <laughs> well legislated. So he's in some kind of, some kind of legal field. He does some kind of legal yeah. business now. <laughs> but the thing is that um, so far in our last reading episode, we've heard that video games are morally wrong for three reasons, basically. We had three arguments that we looked at. The first one was utilitarian, so the ethics of utility, of what brings about more happiness. And there, Waddington argued that there is a risk that video games might cause violence. We can't exclude the possibility entirely, and that is why we should be cautious about violence in video games. The second reason was from a Kantian standpoint, so duty ethics, where he argued when we 
play violent video games, we are cruel to video game characters. And that is a moral harm, a failure of moral duty to ourselves, to our own responsibility not to be cruel. And that's why we shouldn't do it. And the third argument that Waddington made is that the reason for why we feel so eerie, or might feel so eerie about virtual violence, is because there is a connection to real violence. There is a certain similarity, and the more we engage with virtual violence, the more we might lose grasp on the idea of actual violence. There is a kernel of that that makes me pause and think, right? And what's interesting about Schulzke's article is that he kind of he kind of elaborates and says, well, all right, yes, there, maybe there's something to look at, but your premise is a little flawed here. And he goes through from exactly the same moral philosophical perspectives. We're going to go through this by talking about uh, Immanuel Kant again. We're going to talk about uh, utilitarianism, and we're going to talk about Aristotelian virtue ethics. That's the program for today's show. So let's strap start in, everybody. Strap in, everybody. Fasten your seatbelts. Here comes Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Some categorical imperative. So he, Schulzke says, quote, From the Kantian perspective, we must focus on how players act in the digital world. What makes us moral or immoral is how we treat others in the game and what intentions inform our actions. End quote. Because remember, with Immanuel Kant, what matters the consequences, they are of no real significance. The important thing is what is the premise? What is the maxim upon which you act? And, well, we heard in our last reading episode that we ought not to be cruel to animals. And that's why we also ought not to be cruel to video game characters. And that is exactly mm. where Schulzke disagrees. He says, actually... This entire comparison between animals on the one hand and video game characters on the other is totally flawed. Video game characters are are not like animals because they don't have consciousness. They don't have yes. any kind of feeling. And he says at one point, where do you draw the line? You know, at what point do you do you start to say you should not be cruel to objects because it would it would be like being cruel to an animal? It doesn't really equate to one another. Yeah. If the moral significance comes only with the visual resemblance of how accurate or how authentic or how realistic a depiction of a person is, then we would have to say, if you tear up a picture of a person, that is exceedingly cruel because you're essentially destroying that person. And he says the same kind of thing applies to video games. Video game characters, we know they don't have consciousness. And just because they look similar to human beings, we know that they are actually not, at least not in any way that matters for a, a moral philosophical standpoint. There is a pin that I want to put in here, and I think it might be worth bringing up at the end of the, the discussion, because like the Waddington article, this point in particular made me think about my own interaction with video game characters very specifically. So while I agree with Schultzke here that it is not, it's not the same as being cruel to an animal— there is something that I'd like to kind of jump off uh, talking about the cruelty we imbue into video games. Okay. You want to do that at the end? I think it might work better. Yeah, but I just want to plant that seed for now. Yeah. 
We'll let it we'll let it grow over the next next 20 minutes and then eventually yes. we'll harvest its fruits. <laughs> yes. Sour though they may be. <laughs> so Schulzke says actually harming characters in a video game is not cruel. He says, quote, one cannot be cruel to an inanimate object, and this is exactly what characters in games are. End quote. So, in other words, we're not cruel, but there can be a problem that occurs. If the intention is to actually harm other people, for example, if, um, let's say, that both of us, we are playing a video game, and I have some kind of uh, tool that I can use maybe to install like a Trojan on your, on your computer to then delete um, your like, uh, important work documents. Mm. If I were to do that, then that would be cruel. That would be cruel because my intention would be to harm you, and that would be morally reprehensible. Just like this, there was this important case that uh, Schulzke brings up of a uh, a wife who gets exceedingly upset and annoyed with her partner who constantly plays World of Warcraft, and he's put like hundreds and maybe thousands of hours into a World of Warcraft character and has a strong relationship with this with his avatar. And one day, the wife is so upset, and she deletes this World of Warcraft character. Now, there is the problem. She is actually inflicting, inflicting harm upon him, and the intention is clearly to harm him, and that is why that is morally reprehensible. But it's not something that happens, you know, in-game. It's not something that's wrong against the character. It's only wrong because there's a relationship, a clear relationship between that character and the husband. Well, and importantly, and this harkens back to a previous reading series, that exists outside of the rules of the game, right? If it's, first of all, the wife in that case wasn't playing the game World of Warcraft. She stepped outside of it and deleted the character. It's like taking your ball and going home, right? Which you're stepping outside of the magic circle. Yeah. You're actually destroying the magic circle, and that's terrible. That can be really tough, especially if you put so much time into a character, especially, like, imagine World of Warcraft, where th that person might have built friendships uh, in that. And of course, these it doesn't mean that someone will not be your friend anymore because you lost your character level. But still, it's like, basically, you're throwing a stick between someone's legs in order to make them trip up because you're angry with them. And the thing is, though, you can do that in games as well. I thought of an example. Think of the idea, let's say you're playing, uh, let's say, Overwatch or some kind mm. of other competitive online shooter. And then you decide to particularly go after one player until they basically have a, a, a meltdown or until they rage a quit. rage quit. Yeah. yeah, until they rage quit. So you intentionally go after them. Uh, or I've got a personal example even. Personal example, when I was playing GTA V online... Oh, sure. I, know, I know I shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> I went into that world and I realized very quickly that other players often were playing very aggressively. And that's cool. That's fine. That's what the game is for, um, right? You could, though, activate like a passive mode so that other players can't harm you. But one dude kept pursuing me. He did things like, for example, when I was just walking around, I was making some money just, you know, role-playing a little bit in that world. And I didn't want to fight at that point. And that dude just like races towards me. And then he deliberately jumps out of the car that he's driving so that the car doesn't count anymore as player-controlled, but as an object 
that hits me. And that I remember distinctly because I got so angry about this. Sorry that I'm going on a tangent here. <laughs> I went to a gas station to rob it, as you do in GTA 5. <laughs> and while I was uh, stealing the money, I wanted to leave afterwards. And that same dude, he parked his car directly in front of the exit door so that I couldn't leave the store anymore. And that's when I thought, that is morally reprehensible. You yes. morally reprehensible creature. I to myself. <laughs> it it all stems from you're you're not playing by the rules. That's where the cruelty comes into it. That's where the the immoral factor comes in. Is uh, you know if you I, I engaged in passive mode and you're still doing things to ruin my experience. You're a, you're a spoil sport. <laughs> yeah, you're being a spoil yeah. sport and intentionally ruining other people's fun. That's where the cruelty comes in. Though that is not usually what we talk about when we speak about violence in video games. No, I was going to say it's a far cry from violence. I would just yeah. say that it's more teasing or annoying. or and, and that's frustrating, but I don't think that it's akin to actual violence. Yeah, because the violence that happens in the game, that in itself is not necessarily morally wrong. Especially because um, if we come back to the GTA Online example. If you log into GTA Online, you know that you're going to enter a PvP space where people are going to shoot at each other, where you're going to be happy you're flying in a helicopter and someone shoots you down with a rocket launcher. Those are the rules and everyone consents to that. Uh, that passive mode excluded here, right? <laughs> well, you, you enter a match in Counter-Strike, you know that you're going to get shot at and that you're going to shoot at other people. Everyone's aware of this, everyone consents to this, and that's why the violence that happens there is not morally wrong. And... Schultzka talks about this a little bit later in the article, but the idea of that's kind of similar to engaging in a sports match where there is violence taking place. You know, football, football is a violent sport. Hmm. So when you engage in it, you kind of, uh, you consent to the fact that this violence may be taking place. I think the, the big difference, especially when we're talking about the Kantian maxims and everything is how are you approaching that? Right. If you are going into a football game saying, I'm, I forget the rules of the game, I'm going to break that guy's leg, I would say you're a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> but if it happens, that's the game that you went into. You didn't mean to do that. Right. So that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, even in games, and I'm talking about offline games and sports competitions where violence is an integral part of it, uh, let's say you go into a boxing ring, it's very clear that if you enter that ring, then you're going to get punched and you yeah, punch right. others. That's the thing, <laughs> yeah. right? So yeah. uh, you basically consciously engage in that and that is why you can't go into a boxing ring and then say like, oh, it's cruel or someone's like cruel to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I'm going to sue you. <laughs> but the thing yeah, is, we would think that time, person is silly. Everyone knows that if you punch the guy with the white and black striped shirt, right? Ah, yes. Off limits. That's not part of the rules. The moment, also the moment the uh, the match is done, the moment you leave that ring, you can't punch anyone. But within that magic circle, the rules are just the rules of the game and it is consensual and therefore not morally wrong. Now, there could still be a problem though, and that is, from the perspective of Aristotelian virtue ethics. Ah, yes. Our favorite Aristotle. 
Yes, we. I think we haven't spoken about Aristotle on the show yet. No. Maybe we need to give a brief introduction. Yeah, a good, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm thinking, what do I know about Aristotle except what I've read in this article? I'm not sure I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're not going to go into the entire, like, into uh, poetics and, and all of this. Mm. We're going to only look at the idea of virtue ethics. And virtue ethics are a particularly interesting strand of ethical reasoning because it is very practical. It sounds so abstract, but really it's very practical. So Aristotle, his perspective was, there's some core virtues that we have as human beings. And these virtues are usually um, determined by maintaining a balance. It was always about keeping everything in balance. So, For example, courage. We would consider courage to be a virtue. If you have too much of it, you're going to be bold and you're going to maybe hurt other people. That's not good. If you have too little of it, you're going to be very shy. You're going to be, well, a coward in quotation marks here. But if you hit the right balance, then you have courage. And that's what makes a virtue. If you find the perfect uh, space on the slider for the stat. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're just in that golden period. Yeah. For Aristotle, the slider, the best position of the slider was always the default setting. Right in the middle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right in the middle. You must keep a balance with all things. You shouldn't, you, you can break this down to very biological things even. You, like you shouldn't be malnurtured, but you should also not overindulge. So mm. that's the kind of uh, strand of thinking. And in order to obtain these virtues, we don't have to do some like, you know, armchair reasoning. We know that Kant, he basically was like very logical in the way he argued his uh, his moral philosophical framework. Mm. For Aristotle, it's a much more practical matter. In order to obtain those virtues, it's just a matter of practice. We must always practice them as much as we can. Every single thing that we do that goes against them, that will kind of bring the slider a little bit off base. And everything that we do in favor, that will rebalance it. And so, basically, the moral life is one that is a constant practice every single day. And the big things and the big decisions in life, but also in the small things. And that's something where we could say, well, if we look at violence in video games, wouldn't it be a problem if we constantly play video games in which we are violent? Mm. Doesn't that mean we're basically cultivating harmful behavior? Doesn't that mean that we're basically throwing that slider off base. That would be as if the violence that you're engaging in in video games is a one-to-one -one comparison to real-life violence, right? Or or maybe not even one-to-one, -one, but very cl close to, okay, when I am shooting a gun in Counter-Strike, it's as if I'm shooting a gun in real life. And I suppose the argument could be made that, yes, they are similar in the sense that it's meant to emulate shooting a gun, but it's not, it's not training you, which we go into a little bit later. And it's not the exact action. So I, I would think that Aristotle would probably say, yes, if it were that you are engaging in actual real-life violence, yeah, that would be bad. But it's not really that. It can even be virtuous. Violence as such would not necessarily be deemed morally wrong by Aristotle, Schultzke says. If you look at these Greek, uh, Greek tragedies, there's a whole lot of violence involved. Like, obviously, we can't ask Aristotle about video games. Mm, he didn't mm. play many. 
but <laughs> <laughs> he did definitely engage with uh, theater plays and, and great tragedies. And at no point was there any indication that violence as such would be morally problematic. Um, it can be, but the question of whether it is morally problematic or not, from the perspective of virtue ethics, depends on whether that violence that we see in some form is redeemable with uh, virtues that are being practiced. Uh, Schultzke says, uh, some virtues are exemplified in combat, end quote. <laughs> so if we say we, we play a game such as Uncharted, I'm going to keep it like a, a, a very simply, we are violent in that game. We're shooting a lot of people. But the virtue is basically to stop the bad guy from taking over the world. Or good. if you want to keep it... <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Or if you want to keep it even very simple when it comes to Super Mario, of course, we are jumping on the... We're bobbing on the heads of those uh, Mushroom Kingdom creatures, and that's terrible. But we're doing it in order to save the princess, which is, of course, a sexist trope. Let's leave that aside for now. <laughs> but it is uh, a form of virtue that's being practiced through the exertion, the fictional exertion of violence. And that's why it can be morally permissible to be violent in video games. Especially when it's when it's contextualized like that, because I can't think of a... Well, I can think of games that have no context. We've mentioned hatred yeah. a number of times. Hatred, that, yeah. Yeah, that is a that is an an immoral, cruel game, right? Why is that? Because well, I would say that the I would say the reason is because the point is to indiscriminately kill people. Hmm. That's there's you're not doing it in service of anything else. The point is the point is hatred, right? The point is to cultivate this feeling of the world is dark and I need to cleanse it, which is horrific. But if you look at a game like uh, Ocarina of Time, that very deliberately tells you, you're working on behalf of the, the virtue, courage, to, to save Hyrule, right? That's, to go back to your courage example, what a, what a beautiful way to exemplify the better side of violent actions. Link is not doing anything out of cruelty or out of malice. It's all in, the, in pursuit of helping people and being courageous. That is, of course, a very strong contrast between right. yeah. <laughs> hatred on the one hand and Ocarina yeah. of Time on the other. I work in extremes. <laughs> <laughs> it does, of course, illustrate exactly that point. Yeah, one, yeah. Is, one doesn't argue in favor of any virtues. The protagonist is not virtuous in any way. And that's why you could legitimately say... Um, that the exertion of violence in that game, or the depiction of violence, that is morally reprehensible. Whereas in Ocarina of Time, it's fine. And um, there are, of course, cases that are a little bit less clear-cut. Famously, there's a game like Manhunt, or a series. Oh, yeah. Like Manhunt, where there is always this lingering discussion. On the one hand, you've got the situation that there is... Uh, you're playing as a character who's basically... Uh, captured by a violence snuff filmmaker yeah. who deems himself to be an artist and um, basically wants to film real killings of people. And you're kind of coerced into that as a your, your avatar, you play a character. And so you have to murder a lot of people as gruesomely as possible for the delight of this uh, director, of this artistic director. It's a little bit difficult, I think, in the case of Manhunt, because on the one hand, you have this very explicit 
depiction of violence that really is very gratuitous. Yes. You get extra points for like specifically gruesome kills. You can kill with daily objects. And it's a game that a lot of people find reprehensible. On the other hand, you have this kind of meta commentary on media violence that is a little bit more tongue-in-cheek with the, by the way, the developer studio here is Rockstar Games, so we know that there's a certain kind of cheekiness or satire involved in it. But the thing is, it's at least from my perspective, I find it a little bit hard to decide because it's such a, such a gray area case, whether it's morally permissible or not. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I wonder what Aristotle would think of Manhunt, because I think Aristotle, you brought up poetics earlier. I think he would argue in poetics that the beauty of theater and of drama is that you can engage with these horrifying topics without actually committing them. And it, it allows you to think about all of the different aspects of it in a, from a comfortable point of view, right? Or maybe not a comfortable point of view, but a, a safe point of view, a, a morally safe point of view. Cathartic, right? That's what you're going yes. for here. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's cathartic in, in a number of ways. And I think that the trouble, though, is if that satire or that parody doesn't come through, like a, a perfect contrast is to use another Rockstar game, which is GTA is clearly satire. It's very clearly over the top. Look at how s- ridiculous American culture is. And that, I think it comes through a little bit clearer. So when somebody says, yeah, GTA is violent, but I don't think it's, it, it doesn't verge on that kind of scary territory that Manhunt does because Manhunt is a little grayer, as you said. It's harder to kind of parse the parody in it if you're not looking at it from that particular lens. If you just approach it naturally, I think it's a little harder to determine whether that's meant to be satire or not. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult. And maybe that is the best point of reasoning for why youth regulations are so important. Mm. That is the best way we can say, well, uh, we can, without without exploring the psychological effects of playing violent video games, we can assume that a person that is 18 or younger might not be able to comprehend the, let's say, the slight, uh, slightly peppered um, flavor of parody and satire and social commentary in Manhunt. And it might, the same applies to GTA V, also the GTA series that, of course, you can be gratuitous in those games, but they are set up in a specific framework so that it gets a satirical context. Young people might not, or children might not be able to pass this, and that's why they wouldn't have this kind of redeeming experience of, yeah, basically experiencing some kind of virtuous or inherently virtuous commentary, arguing against the violence. So the thing is, without getting lost in that train of thought, From an Aristotelian point of view, the only way to determine whether a video game or violence in a game is morally wrong or not is by doing exactly what we just did. Looking at it on a case-by-case basis and trying to pass whether there are like redeeming virtues in those games that are very explicit with their violence, and there might well enough be. Violence as such is not a reason for why a video game ought to be considered morally reprehensible. That, uh, that Aristotle guy knows a thing or two. Let's move on to utilitarianism because this is the point that is a little bit more elaborate with effect studies and everything be- having to be taken into account. So utilitarianism, in short, is 
the idea that something is morally good if it brings about more happiness than it does harm. That's how to assess it. And we heard the argument in our last reading episode that on the positive side, people enjoy playing violent video games. They are some of the most successful games. Probably uh, you know all of the games that we've referenced today, and that is an indicator of how prominent they actually are. On the negative side, well, people might actually die because if there is some kind of effect that might maybe cultivate over the years and accumulate over the years, and at some point something happens like a, a school shooting, for example, then that is tremendously terrible. And that's why we have to factor that risk in with, with this equation. Now, Schulzke says, yeah, that that might be true, but there are a couple of things to consider. One is that it's not just about fun, really, because games are much more than that. They are an important factor in the economy. We know that the video game uh, business, the video game industry is profoundly bigger than Hollywood. We also know, especially on this show, that video games can help us understand ourselves. They are a means of artistic expression. They help us identify problems in our society. They are an important field of cultural and artistic expression. And that's why we need to take those things into account as well. We can't just say, well, it's fun, and on the other hand, people might die. It's not as simple as that. Yeah, it's, I mean, with any, with any form of art, right, I think it's not just that people enjoy it. it there's, there's more that comes from that, or the enjoyment is deeper than just having fun. In order to kind of investigate this argument, Scholzke talks a little bit about the real-world effects of violent video games. And um, he addresses this big fear that video games, violent video games, might make people aggressive. And in the worst-case scenario, might even cause actual violence. And he goes into three different claims that people make. The first one is video games are training killers. The second one is video games destroy empathy. And the third one is there is a direct link between video games, violent video games, and actual violence. He kind of disputes all three of them. He says, to the first point, training killers. He says, well, there's not enough similarity between shooting a gun in a video game and shooting a gun in real life to make it possible for someone to be trained as a killer in a video game. So, so let's take that logic for a minute, right? Okay, violent video games are training killers. Then by that virtue, because I played a lot of Cooking Mama when I was young, I should be a wonderful cook. Hey, you and probably just... are. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... Well, uh, we'll put a pin in that. <laughs> but, you know, to, to, to that point, right? Or he mentions, uh, you know, uh, these casual games. Like, if you take a game like Guitar Hero, I played a lot of Guitar Hero when I was young, too. I'm not a good guitarist by any means, right? It's, it's just not one-to-one. -one. There is a whole lot of truth in that argument. It's, to me, very reasonable because, indeed, like, playing Call of Duty is so different from joining the military mm. that you can't say that it will train you. However, we do have to acknowledge that there is also a link. There is, for example, if we want to be very pragmatic about it, there is the situation that video game companies do supply 
military training simulators with engines and with technology. Well, that's some, that's not the violent debate because usually military simulators are not explicitly violent, right? They're for simulation purposes. Right, right. A lot of times it's for more technical things like uh, drone flying or actual flying, things like that. Bomb defusal. Yep. Yeah, bomb defusal, but also tactics and strategies on how to, mm. let's say, how to storm a house in a hostage situation, for example. Yeah, I was, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm laughing at the idea of... Uh, the American military giving everybody a copy of Triangle Strategy. All right, learn from this <laughs> real-time strategy game. Our <laughs> <laughs> uh, Triangle Strategy. Mm, you just triggered my memory. I still wanted to play that. Yep, me too. So we'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come back thing. to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also not explicitly violent. But but yeah, of course, there, there, there are simulations. And I mentioned in our last reading episode already that I feel like I've learned a little bit how to hold and aim and shoot a rifle from games, more simulation-heavy games such as Operation Flashpoint, for example, and or Armed Assault, simulation-heavy video games. I think they can do that to a certain degree. But so, yeah, that, that, it, that might be there, but it's an effect that must not be overestimated. That is not going to make me go and get a rifle and actually shoot people. It's, it's an effect that one would have to seek out on their own terms too, because it, it, I think there's this idea that the violence, you become subliminally, uh, more, more adept at shooting or something. I think if you're, if you're growing up in rural America and you have in your head as a 15 year old, I'd like to join the army. You probably are going to play call of duty and you probably are going to seek out real life weapons training and things like that. So it's, it's a little confirmation bias, you know, of people who might actually want to look more into things anyway, that this effect is found more in. Mm. That would be my thought. Yeah. There are also curious phenomena, for example, in Germany, uh, Gamescom <clears throat> is coming up in August. And every year when Gamescom comes around, there's a controversy because the German military actually is at Gamescom and they are trying to get people to join the military, to enter military training. Well, you could then ask, um, why are they at Gamescom? <laughs> well, <laughs> the reason is that there are a whole lot of people that play video games that are at least acquainted with the idea of holding a weapon. They know stuff about weapons. They play maybe military shooters, maybe competitive military shooters, and might not be repulsed by a, a stand at a, at, a, um, at a convention where there are like rifles or at least Things are on display, weapons are on display. They often have like a tank or something like that standing around there. And they might be more inclined to join the military. Then basically the question is, why would you go to Gamescom and not to, let's say, some kind of uh, hippie concert? Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the thing is that there is this idea of a link. Uh, and I, I'm not going to say that this link doesn't exist because I do think that there are probably a lot of people that are in video, engaged in video game culture that might be a little bit more inclined to p possibly join the military mm. than in other places. But uh, it's not an effect that we must necessarily be concerned about. It's not an effect that we must worry about that people uh, will do terrible things because that would be more uh, dangerous in the, in the case of number two, which is destroying empathy. Mm. So if, if video games actually would destroy empathy, if they would essentially turn us slowly into psychopaths, right? 
that would be a real problem. And we would have to be really scared because a whole lot of people are playing GTA. That, is, that would be scary. But I just absolutely, there's no, there's no link to show that this is happening, right? There's no real evidence there. And I would actually posit that the opposite is true. And uh, a person with a normal amount of empathy engaging with a video game may increase their empathy or use that empathy in a way that they might not have thought when they're presented with a situation that's foreign to them, where they can find a connection, or maybe there's something that, that comes about that they, they weren't expecting. Like, I would say one of my favorite examples of video games uh, using violence to, I think, inure the player with different empathy than they were expecting is Spec Ops The Line. That game is very violent in a way that's very realistic and scary. Um, and without going into spoilers, there's an event that happens in Spec Ops The Line that I think if you don't put your controller down and think about what you've done for a while, it, that's an odd experience playing that game. Yeah, it's very much like this anti-war game yeah. uh, strongly inspired by Apocalypse Now, right? Um, no, The Heart of Darkness. The Heart, the Heart of, of Darkness. Darkness. Yeah, yep. the novel, The Heart of Darkness. And basically putting you in the situation of feeling guilt for having harmed innocent people. Right. And I would say that that's a game that ever since I've played that, I look at violent video games through a much different lens. Where, Or it's the same with Bioshock, right? On a, on a much less insane scale where the ending of that game does make you think, what am I actually doing when I play this game, right? And it doesn't mean you're going to stop or change the way that you play violent video games necessarily, but that nugget might be in your brain every time you pick up a gun in a video game of what am I actually doing here? Yeah, and in many ways, video games are actually empathy machines, you could say. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, I just had to think about, as you mentioned, uh, Spec Ops The Line, my mind inevitably wandered to the Telltale games. Oh, yeah. Uh, Life is Strange, all of these games in which you make decisions and the big chunk of the gameplay is just having dialogue and empathizing with characters. Your main job in these games is to empathize and to think about what other people might want and what they might find morally bad or what they don't like or what harms them in this way. And it, it doesn't even have to be that. It could be like a, a much simpler game, as you mentioned already, Ocarina of Time, where you constant, where you dread for the well-being of the princess, for example. And... Uh, in that in that way, we can definitely say that a lot of video games further our capacity of empathy. Uh, since you mentioned Ocarina of Time again, I wanted to say this is a, a personal example of my empathy greatly deepening or my understanding of the world deepening. Because Ocarina of Time, for those of you who don't know, is my favorite game of all time. It's I I don't think I'm alone in that, but it's very special to me in a number of ways. And I remember when I played it as a young kid, the thing that stood out to me was after everything Link goes through, the end of that game is that he goes back to a world where no one knows what he did. And that, as a young kid, struck me that, wow, the power of doing the right thing when no one knows is so important. And that's something that I think I knew, right? As a kid, it's not like I was a psychopath. <laughs> I knew that it was good to do the right thing. But going on that journey with Link deepened that and blossomed my understanding of that. So to say that games kill empathy, 
I think, is a feeling that a lot of us instinctively say, no, 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 that's not true. Exactly what you just says, said is the point where Aristotle would probably say, I rest my case, you know? Right. This is exactly <laughs> the point. This is exactly yeah. the point of really performing and practicing virtues, learning from a game, or maybe not learning because you said you knew it before, but experiencing from a game the how precious it is to do the right thing even if you don't get credit for it. Right. That's really amazing. And I think in many games we have these aspects of, yeah, I'm practicing virtues or furthering empathy. And the thing is that if we want to, if we hypothesize that we that video games are actually destroying empathy so that they're doing the opposite, then we need actual empirical proof of that. And right. the thing is, yes, there are studies that uh, show that there might be some kind of connection that's very mildly, just barely significant, and that is probably also very temporary only. Studies that also work with a whole lot of translation of effects. We had the uh, chili sauce example, I think, last time, where you say, okay, so the child plays a violent video game and then gets told the next person really doesn't like chili sauce but you can mix them a drink and put chili sauce in there and then basically equate the amount of chili sauce they put into their aggressive potential <laughs> or their willingness to hurt others yep that's a <laughs> it's a little bit problematic schultzko also says if we look to japan we have to see that in japan video games have been huge for a long time and we have, at least so far, no reason to assume that uh, the entire population of Japan would be less empathic than other parts of the world. And that's why we need, if we want to act on that premise, we need proper empirical proof. And so far, that proof has not been delivered. There is, in fact, quite the consensus so far that there might be an effect, but it's mild and it's short-lived. It disappears shortly after engaging like if you play doom you might be a little bit more on edge for like maybe two minutes after you played it but then <laughs> yeah. basically your heart rate normalizes again and you're pretty much the same as you were before without suddenly having lost all empathy it's like seeing a violent movie you know you get excited it's it's the same argument right movies don't make people violent yeah the only thing that yep. made me violent is that uh, i was walking through elden ring and I was having, I was having, uh, I was being in my groove, you know, I was doing my thing. Oh, yeah. And suddenly, a huge bear creature pops out of nowhere <laughs> and slashes me to pieces with all my 150,000 runes. Oh, no. And I, and I thought, that, like, that will make no! you die. <laughs> <laughs> so, Who am I going to punch now? <laughs> but the thing is, the last point assessing direct causation. Mm. The worst possible outcome would be if video games would actually make us violent in that way that I've just illustrated. If people who have no tendency to be violent or no intention to be violent would become violent because of video games. And Schulzke says, well, nice, and it's understandable that that is something that people might panic about, but there's not a lot of support for that hypothesis. There have been no cases where that is evident that video games basically made people violent. Mm. And if we look at the crime statistics in comparison to how many violent video games are out on the market, there's clearly no correlation. The world has not become more violent. I know sometimes it feels like that. 
But uh, at least I know of it in the US and I know of it in Germany or in Europe as well, that the crime statistics have not been rising in any correlation with the prominence of video games. Again, going back to my kind of rural American soldier boy uh, example, I think that you would, to, to blame video, uh, to blame your violence on video games, I think you would have to have already had an idea that you were going to be violent prior to playing a video game. And it's, you can't give a video game to anybody and immediately turn them violent. There's something else going on there. Yeah. You might even have the reverse effect that, or the reverse causation that people who have certain violent tendencies or violent fantasies might be more inclined to play violent video games. Mm. Right. This is not something that we know for sure, but I have read studies in which this at least occurred as a possibility and that might be the case that might be how we can explain a phenomenon like the columbine high school massacre which we elaborated upon in the last reading episode that there were direct references drawn between the terrible crime that they would commit and like shooters like doom for example yeah they when they said like it's going to be just like in doom um there's a certain obsession with violence there that expresses itself in that fascination for a game like Doom. But Doom is not the game that basically makes them violent, right? That's the direction. Right. So the thing is, all in all, if we want to summarize, we have the situation that we don't have to assume that hurting a character in a video game is cruel because video game characters don't have a moral status of that kind of significance. We also know that we can practice virtues in video games and that fictional violence, violence in video games, is not necessarily morally reprehensible. We can learn from uh, situations in which violence occurs. And we have very little reason to believe that there is an actual direct causative link between violence in video games on the one hand and real-world violence on the other. So... Ultimately, what this comes down to is that if we wanted to impose any restrictions that go beyond what we have as youth protection, then we would need some kind of empirical proof, which thus far we do not have. And, and this is where the utilitarian consideration comes to its conclusion, and it would have to outweigh the benefits and the negative effects that it would have. Because, of course, there is such a point, and that's where Scholzke ends his argument, that violence in the media and in video games is also part of free speech. It's part of creative expression. And if we would be willing to censor that, we better have a solid empirical proof that that is actually going to make a difference. And that's why, from a utilitarian standpoint, Schulzke comes to the conclusion that we should not impose any severe prohibitions on violence in video games, except for, of course, youth protection. I mentioned up top, there are feelings that I think we all intuit when we have these arguments where our gut instinct is to say, well, that's not right. And here comes Schultzka basically breaking down why that is. And I think these are really important tools to have in your toolbox if you ever find yourself engaging in this argument or finding yourself talking to maybe a parent or a friend or a teacher who has these preconceived notions about violence in video games, where... I think the best way to start is to basically take Schulzke's idea and say, well, hang on a minute. I play violent video games, and I've actually learned 
a lot about myself and about the world through doing so. And I would never engage in this kind of violence. You know me. I would never do this, right? It's worth it to go through these points looking at utilitarianism, looking at even the Kantian ethics, the Aristotelian ethics, because it grounds your feeling in real argument, which is a great way to do it. Exactly. I'd like to say too, I want to check on that seed that I planted earlier because... Oh yeah, you planted a yeah. seed. It must be ripe by now. I think so. A nice banana or something, let's say. So mm. um, I wanted to... Another great reason to read these kinds of articles is because it, it, like video games, makes you reflect on your own thoughts. And something that I've been struggling with for the past maybe two years, and Stefan, you know this because we've talked about articles I've written about it, are sort of what we owe to characters in video games. And this response to Waddington by Schultzka made me think that while it is true that characters in a video game are really no different from objects, when you engage with video games enough and you have enough of a background in the storytelling of video games to understand what a game creator might be doing with these objects, you cannot help but imbue feelings into these characters. And so it doesn't feel like they're objects. It feels like they are much more than that. But I think the meditation that you can do on that is, well, I think I'm bringing a lot to them and making them real. And these characters speak to me because I find these things important, or I find this hard to look at in myself, which is why I dislike this character and want to harm them, right? So that, I think, is a really beautiful evolution of your own empathy, your own relation to violence, how you treat people, because you're engaging in this simulation, like Aristotle might have said, to learn more about yourself and how you view these difficult topics. Yeah, indeed. It's Even if you take these different reasonings that we've applied, and we take this idea of owing something to characters, then uh, there's these different moral reasonings that Schulzke presents us, they come to a bit of a contradiction, I feel like. Because on the one hand, there's this idea, yeah, so they are, NPCs are like objects. Video game characters don't have a consciousness, but apparently we can cultivate virtues by engaging with these objects, you know? <laughs> Which <laughs> right, is, right. that would be weird. And I totally agree with you that it's uh, totally important to engage in this as if world. They don't have a consciousness, but we have to accept and pretend that they do because otherwise yeah. we can't learn anything from, We, I mean, we could, we can play like with video game characters as if we play with building blocks, but we don't learn anything about empathy. And that's why we do need to actually engage on that level. It, I would say it doesn't make it morally significant in the sense that like if you torture a sim in your in uh, in a game for some reason that doesn't necessarily make it morally reprehensible yeah but of course it, it is a weird double bind right because i i imbue my sim that i create with a certain life and with an idea of that sim i, I want i want that sim to be well you know and to be happy and have a good life that's why i created him uh, and and so I have a certain relationship. I feel like I owe that sim something. It's not something of a moral significance, but more like of an empathetic significance, I feel. Right. And I think that's that's where, and this is where I'll leave it, that's where our friend Kant comes back to it, I think, which is, we we talked in the Waddington article about how engaging in cruelty to animals is really 
engaging in cruelty to yourself. And I do think at a certain point, if you engage in violence or cruelty to video game characters, that feeling you get where you say, oh, I don't like that I did that, that's worth exploring. It's not, it's not just an object at that point. Totally, yeah. Maybe that's exactly the possibility that video games, violent video games, give us to explore it and to see, for example, torturing a sim and then feeling a little bit like, oh, that was actually quite terrible, you know? <laughs> I, I haven't caused any actual harm to a human being with a consciousness, but still, mm, I feel kind of weird afterwards. Yeah. And I sh may maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, if you have that feeling, then that means you're perfectly all right. Yeah, you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing well. It's, by the way, this is not the last episode on the matter of violence and video games. We got a whole lot more that we could do, a whole lot more things that we could talk about. Just as a little teaser, I would like to, someone in the future, doesn't have to be like a couple of weeks in the future, probably, uh, do some kind of reading on the question of uh, can virtual acts be morally wrong? Like, is there any kind of act that we could imagine that might be morally wrong? But that's for another matter. That's also going beyond just uh, violence. But that was so far. Those were our thoughts on the matter on violence and video games in these two reading episodes. Please let us know what you think and whether you feel terrible after torturing a character in Sims. <laughs> I know I do. Yep. And while you do that, we'll move ahead and do some side questing. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As you know, in our side quests, we venture through the internet to bring you stories and articles that we find interesting and relevant. We also talk about our own impressions of games we are currently playing, and you can find everything linked in the show notes. Number one. France bans English gaming tech jargon in push to preserve language purity. This is an article on published on theguardian.com. Shame on me, I actually haven't... Oh no, there's no real author indicated um, in this case. It's the, the France reporting department of the guardian <laughs> that, that i got this from it's from it's it's from pierre baguette <laughs> i recently had a conversation actually with with a friend about um anglicizing terms and how people say for example in germany we say like portemonnaie for wallet hmm. um and and how how people might <laughs> <laughs> How if you want to strictly anglicize everything, then the baguette becomes a, a badget. <laughs> so, delicious. Some nice, delicious. Mm, some nice badget. Badget. Oh, the thing is that language is a contested field, and uh, there's always a certain fear of change whenever things happen. Well, mm. languages kind of, they organically change over time. And one thing that's happening all over the world is that languages are anglicized, right? They import English or American terminology. Mm. And the French cultural ministry uh, took umbrage with that or has been taking umbrage with that for quite a while. And they really don't like that there are so many English terms coming to France by virtue of video game discourse. So last Monday, they announced a new regulation to protect the French language from this assault <laughs> of anglicized terminology. Henceforth, anglicized gaming terms must be replaced by approved French terms. For example, and I don't speak French, the word pro-gamer must be replaced by joueur professionnel. And the word streamer must be replaced by Joueur, animateur, indirect. Seems I. Uh, <laughs> where do I land on this? Let me think in real time. Well, well my first reaction <laughs> is that it's just clunky. If you want to mm, say it's a bit clunky, yeah, I'm like my favorite. My favorite French uh, story that I know. My my mom um, studied French and is, is I think still near fluent. And she would say how she always loved that. In French, you know, you just say it's there's you just say le weekend, you know, it's it's not like, oh, whatever the French term would be. It's uh, le weekend, you know, and I think that there's there's a directness of English that I think a lot of other languages like Japanese 
uh, incorporates so many English words just because they're so direct and that it means a very particular thing. So if you're trying to say, I'm a streamer, I think even in French, that would be quicker to say than joueur. I can't even do <laughs> you, you You did it much better than me. <laughs> it just seems, uh, I, I don't know, it's kind of silly, but I'm not French, so. I'm not French either, um, and I respect the effort I think it's gonna fail miserably yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> the thing the thing is that this only applies to language used in official government documents, obviously, because you can't yeah, yeah. prohibit people from using the word pro gamer or streamer when they are in an esports competition. But realistically, people will continue to use these terms whether or not you change it in official government documents. And I think. Uh, there is, of course, a certain merit of preserving language, preserving cultural heritage. But on the other hand, in like video game discourse is so international yeah. and operates so profoundly in English that I feel like it's probably it's a total uphill battle to try this. And in, in Germany, actually, it's so established, for example, the word game, that the German... Uh, the German, I'm not going to call it a union, but it's like a, a, a corporation of all kinds of institutions that are involved in video game discourse. That unit is actually called game. Interesting. And not Spiel, which would be the German word for it. So it, because it's just such an established terminology, when you, when you say game, you also don't necessarily think of chess, but you think of, well, video games, you know? And I almost feel like game is a very adequate adequate term to use a very punchy short compact term that you can use yeah well it's funny too like even in even in japan i remember when i was learning japanese in high school i was i was surprised to find out that the, the word for video game in japanese is video game you know yeah it's, it's game mm. game yeah it's um uh, i think you're right it is a very anglicized um medium and I don't think in any negative way necessarily. It's just that a lot of video game discourse has always been in English. And so when you take these terms, it makes sense that they would come from uh, the English language. But I agree with you. I think, yeah, there's something, if it's just, if it's just in government documents, yeah, okay, makes sense, France, you know, keep, keep the French language alive and important government documents. But I don't think anybody is going to forego the word streamer for a no, mouthful. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Let's move on with number two. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a funny story about uh, Elon Musk, a man that I have very little love for, um, <laughs> getting embarrassed by uh, harddrive.net. So harddrive.net is a really great satirical website. For those of you familiar with The Onion or ClickHole, uh, it's sort of like a, a clickbaity kind of satirical website where... Um, they talk about video games, so uh, they'll have funny articles like Nintendo just announced that the Mew under the truck has died. You know things like this, where it, it, I think if you're if you're a gamer, to use that term again, then you understand. Oh, this is funny on a number of levels. So recently, Elon Musk, I guess, is notorious for just stealing people's content on Twitter and cropping out their names, and oh, he's, he does that. Yeah, it's I, it's not too surprising, but he, no. <laughs> he he uh yeah he he has this weird philosophy that anything online, uh, like a video or a photo or any kind of meme, should be 
just it belongs to the public and therefore you should not credit anyone who does anything so he's this he's he's not a very nice man <laughs> but he he took a cropped photo so harddrive.net had uh, a great article that just said zodiac killer letter solved by opening it with vlc media player <laughs> and he took this and cropped out hard drives information and just posted that as like a meme on Twitter. So hard drive responded and they said, um, okay, well, let me know what you think about this one. And they posted an email or they said after saying, can you at least credit us? They said, let me know what you think about this one. And that was a, an article they had written called Elon Musk admits he wants to travel to Mars because no one hates him there yet. <laughs> <laughs> so Elon Musk fired back and said, less funny than SNL on a bad day. This could make a drunk person sober. Try harder. To which they then responded, well, you would know all about SNL's bad days and showed a picture of him dressed as Wario in that awful sketch that they did on SNL with him. <laughs> so I, I, there's nothing really important to say about this story other than it really made me happy <laughs> because <laughs> i like hard drive and i like what they do with their satirical video game stuff and i dislike elon musk and i think that if i were if i were to say the the kind of more important like what's the nugget that we can take out of this story it's credit artists obviously <laughs> but also um it's okay to clown on elon musk <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's totally fine. So go for it. I mean, I understand that people would take memes and memes are really something that reproduces and that gets spread everywhere. And of course, the origin of a meme often gets lost. Yeah. But the thing is, if you screenshot something, then why would you go out of your way to remove <laughs> the creator, you know? Like well, I, can, I get if yeah. people share something and, the and they don't research the creator. If I mm. see a picture somewhere on Reddit and I share it on Twitter and there's no, um, there's no source given on Reddit, then right. that might happen. But I would never go out of my way to remove it. it that, that doesn't make any sense. I think there's, there's a feeling, and I get this, I get a palpable sense of this with Musk, is that if you don't attribute it to someone, people might think you did it you know mm, and i think taking that, some credit there yes i think that's a pretty prevalent attitude online which is why people ask so vehemently for the source of something because they want to credit the right person especially if they know that it's somebody else like everybody when they saw this um this photo that he had cropped of the hard drive article everyone responded to it like aren't you going to credit hard drive who wrote this article and made this joke so people know it and i think that yeah it's just this feeling of um you know, when you hear a story secondhand, you kind of make it yours to make it seem like you did the thing or you were the one experiencing this, this cool thing that happened to you. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it just seems lame to me. Just credit it people. It seems lame. You yeah. know what seems especially lame about this? The hmm. fact that after being called out for it in a funny way, obviously, but still, yeah. uh, then I would say probably most people, probably most decent people at least would say like, oh yeah, right, sorry, edit the post and put like an app hard drive or something yeah. in there, you know, yeah. to basically just quickly credit them. That's not a big, <laughs> that's, not, that's less work than actively cropping them out. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. It, <laughs> I think that would be the reasonable, it's, it's indicative of a kind of, 
I would say, I don't want to pathologize Elon Musk, but there is a certain, <laughs> seems to be a certain detachment from how the world works in the way that Elon Musk communicates on Twitter. That's at least what I have observed. And that is very befuddling to me. Yeah, I think befuddling is the right word. And it, it's so, we don't get a lot of wins with billionaires. So when these things happen, it is, to, to go back to our earlier discussion, very cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> I saw also, and that is a brief, only a brief, number three, that Elon Musk really loves Elden Ring, just as I do. I'm, I'm still enjoying Elden Ring very much. I think I approached the 200-hour mark now. Mm, and uh, to my surprise, the world is still expanding. Yeah. I'm very much leading into the ending, and I think I could pretty much trigger what would be the very final chapter of this game. Mm -hmm. and, and then I found that there's actually a hidden area, and there's a secret area within the hidden area, and so on and so forth. It goes on and on. And recently I felt a little bit like, mm, maybe this world is just a bit too big. Mm. I love that it's huge, I love that it's vast, and that there's so much to explore, and that there are so many mysteries to be solved, and probably many more that nobody has stumbled across yet that will come up over the course of the next couple of months. Yeah. But I just think they overdid it a little bit. Like, the, the map could be quite a bit smaller, and it would still be a huge game. So I, I feel a little bit like it's it, it should not overstay its welcome. I think it's the it's also the curse of the completionist too. When yeah. you go into these games and you want to see everything, because and we'll we'll talk more about this when you finished it. But you and I approached it very differently. I I played it knowing I'm not going to see everything. I'm going to do multiple new game pluses and see things on on those iterations. And that kind of breathed a little new life into it. You're doing the opposite, which is. I'm going to see as much as possible on this one playthrough. And we've talked that you think this will probably be it for the foreseeable yeah, future, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I will not, will not do a new game plus because I explore every nook and cranny and I know of a few things that I've accidentally missed. Mm. But as far as I'm aware, it's also not possible to do everything in one run through. I don't think so. Because you're inevitably going to, some things cancel each other out unless you maybe very deliberately time things uh, and play with a guide. But that's what I specifically didn't want to do so mm, all in all i just think i still very much love elden ring it's one of the most enjoyable games i've ever played in my life and um i i still think it's it's definitely going to be game of the year no doubt about well, it well there's gonna, no competition you're gonna <laughs> there's no competition yeah. yeah well you're gonna you're gonna get that point for sure uh, for the prediction yes that, that we made however I'm starting to see, like, there are also flaws about these this game, or at least things that I think could have done been done a little bit better uh, when it comes to UI stuff. I'm still flabbergasted that I can't compare the equipment that I have to equipment mm. that a vendor has. Where I just think, like, how am I supposed to know whether this is better than what I already have? I need to first buy it and then equip nice. it, and then they're like, yeah. oh, okay, and then some stats are better and others are worse. And it's it's a little bit strange in, in that regard. Yeah. I think yeah, no game is perfect, right? I think Elden Ring comes pretty damn close. But I will say it that... It comes damn close. Yeah. It's, um, I think there, there are so many games that I've done what you are doing and I've never returned to, right? 
where mm. I've I've said I really want to explore everything. I'll tell you a game like that, Ghostwire Tokyo. I really enjoyed mm. it. I 100%ed it. I got the platinum trophy. I'll never play that game again. It just yeah. totally overstayed its welcome and I really enjoyed a lot in it, but it's the open world syndrome, I think. When you put too much in it, if you go full bore into it, you're going to lose interest. That's the thing that has made me rethink a little bit how I play games. Mm. I have, throughout the recent couple of, like maybe two or three weeks, I've been thinking a lot about how I play games and about how much time it takes me to play through a game and um, how how obsessively I explore every little bit. Mm. I do think that I need to learn to let go a little bit when it comes to the uh, the difficulty, but also to the completion. Because as you said, there is totally a way to play a game like Elden Ring and pretty much like a lot of open world games, actually, playing them in a very enjoyable manner by doing the things that immediately appeal to you or mm. that you find like they make sense for the character in the moment. And then... Once you're done, you can still say, okay, I'm going to do a second run through with a different build, with, you know, making different choices depending on what kind of game you're playing. And having that be a lot more enjoyable than going through the world in a very systematic manner, yeah. as I do now, I can imagine that. And I think, I think I'm going to experiment a little bit with my own way to play. I feel like I'm on a sort of in a transitional space. <laughs> yeah, a spiritual journey of how I play video games because I've always been like hardest difficulty, very systematic exploration. I'm going to do everything that's in there. And I think I'm starting to change my ways a little bit because it just gets too overwhelming. I could yeah. do it if I had nothing else to do. But <laughs> since I also have a job and a PhD and a wonderful podcast, <laughs> I... Not uh, enough time in the, in the week. The yeah, Not enough time to play through the entirety of Elden Ring. Ah, uh, at least not again. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> well, that was our show for today. Thank you so very much for listening. Of course, if you are curious, and we forgot to mention this earlier, and want to support us, help us make this show happen, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus. Just to let you know, because it's even a new month, we should have really mentioned this at the very beginning. Every month we do a Plus episode, Studying Pixels Plus, and this month... Our plus episode is on how to survive a conference. It is ideal if you are now in the situation that the summer's coming, it's conference season, and you've got maybe your first attendances at a conference, maybe your first talk at a conference, and you might be a little bit nervous, or you might just want some tips on how to get the most out of such an experience as going to a conference. If you're curious about that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Thank you so very much for listening and talk to you next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.